This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 96 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Every Day Better. I am excited to have Roshi Eve Monan Marco join me for a conversation about the book of Householder Cohen's Waking Up in the Land of Attachments, which she wrote with Roshi Wendy Agyoko Nakao. I invited Roshi on the podcast after, I'll say, discovered the book. Um, It was released in 2020, and I have no idea how I missed it, which is why I say discovered it. Maybe it was because it was released at the beginning of the pandemic, and I was battling multiple demons like so many of us, but I am sure glad I did finally find it. It's become one of my new favorite books and a real treasure as a practice tool. So much so, I am planning to launch a Buddhist book club as an offering of the Everyday Buddhism membership community. And this book will be the first we read together. The book club is for the Buddhist curious, for nightstand or book Buddhists, and for longtime Buddhist practitioners. I know many would love to read Buddhist-oriented books with others so you can stay motivated and inspired, but you aren't ready to commit to a sangha or a focused study group. This curated virtual book club might be just what you're looking for. We plan to use a combination of message-based discussions on our private community and once-monthly live virtual gatherings led by me. The date is to be announced, but tentatively later this fall, um, hopefully before the beginning of the new year. So keep your eyes open for any announcements. But back to the book of Householder Collins and Roshi Eve. If you've listened to earlier episodes of this podcast, then you may have heard my back-to-back episodes about Zen koans. Koans have always been a favorite practice of mine, but you know, I've drifted away from them off and on for the past few years until this book. This is unlike any book about koans I've ever read. It drills deep into your hiding places, doing what koans do perfectly. They stop you in your tracks and they mess with your conceptual thinking and shake your false trust in the stability of what we think we know. Being drawn into questions without the comfortable ground of quote-unquote knowing offers a practice that can help us pause in our everyday rush to stress and anxiousness caused by trying to be somewhere or someone other than where we are or who we are at this very moment. A little bit more about Roshi Eve. Roshi Eve is a founding teacher of the Zen Peacemaker Order with her late husband, the renowned Roshi Bernie Glassman. She is also the resident teacher at the Green River Zen Center in Massachusetts. Roshi has trained spiritually-based social activists and peacemakers in the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East, and has been a spirit holder at retreats bearing witness to genocide at places like Auschwitz, Rwanda, and the Black Hills in South Dakota. Before that, she worked at the Grayson Mandala, which provides housing, childcare, jobs, and age-related medical services in Yonkers, New York. Eve's articles on social activists and social activities have appeared in the magazines, including Tricycle and Shambhala Sun. 
I just loved this conversation with Roshi Eve. I felt as if we were old friends, and I was honored to talk with her. Among many other things we talked about, oh, we talked about the importance of not knowing, about the surprise factor in the situations we find ourselves in life, and how those surprises helps our mind make leaps, and about how we should try to enter life with our whole selves, our bodies, and not just our minds. So don't miss this one, one of my favorite Buddhist subjects and one of the best books I've read in a very long time. The conversation starts now. Hello, Eve. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Wendy, it's so nice to meet you. And thank you for inviting me, really. You know, it, I, I've been excited, uh, the, especially when I first uh, uh, came across the book. I thought, oh, I have got to get her on this podcast. Um, so, but the first thing I do need to say, and that's because I can't wait to tell you, is that this book, the book of Householder Cones, is the book using cones that I have been waiting for someone to write. Mm-hmm. And you did it. Because uh, I've been sort of a Cohen aficionado for oh years and years since I was first introduced to them. And um, I took a deep dive into Cohen work practice in 2016. And I wrote some articles to share. I was a career coach at the time. And I wrote some articles to share with career coaching clients on LinkedIn about how to use Cohen's to shift their perspective on the people they work with or the people they complain about, which was typically the case. (laughs) Um, So I work with Cohen's using the book Zen Cohen's by my teacher's father, Reverend Gilme Kabose, the father of my late teacher, Reverend Koyo Kabose, um, who founded the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, non-sectarian Japanese Mahayana tradition with strong Shin and Zen influences. Um, so we were trained, and this is why I love this book so much, is we were trained as Bright Dawn lay ministers and senseis to be spiritual companions for those in our everyday lives. And as my podcast and book testify, I've been dedicated to this work since 2009. So to have this book of Collins for the everyday, this is so for the everyday, is a dream come true for myself and to practice and to share with others. You know, I echo what James Ishmael Ford wrote in the review of your book. um, And I give him a big shout out because he recommended the book and that's how I found out about it. He wrote, quote, the only real Zen is the Zen of our actual lived lives. Zen's koans are stories that take us to where we really live, that show us who we are when we let go of the false stories we've been trapped within. This is Zen made out of our bones and marrow, our tears and laughter. So thank you, Roshi, (laughs) for pointing the way to Zen made of our tears and laughter. It's funny that you evoke koans, Wendy. You know, I did uh, a whole summer of intensive study with my grandfather in the Dharma, my teacher's teacher, my Zumi Roshi, at the Zen Center of Los Angeles, one of the pioneers of Zen from Japan who brought it here. And he, working with me, just said, you are the worst koan student I've ever had. (laughs) But I think really what stood in my way and what still stands and has has stood in in the way of so many people is the huge differences in culture, you know, to try to kind of get what it is that they meant by koans. And a thousand years ago in China is really not easy. And it is a very literary device. So we try to make it as simple as possible but the origins are pretty, you know, pretty literary. And then, of course, there's the whole issue that most of those koans don't directly address uh, lay people, men, women with jobs and children and families and parents and and all <laughs> things like that. So, yeah, it, it became very important as as I loved koans and as I got into them more, 
I really wanted to make them more accessible to other people. And I'm so glad that my friend Roshi Agyoku uh, really joined in that effort. Yeah, and I and I hear that. I think that's why I fell in love with Cohen's when I was first introduced to them because I've always been a a poet at heart. I've kept journals since I was like six years old or something, and so the literary it it captured me. I kind of I kind of got what it was doing, even though I didn't get it spiritually. If you know what I mean, I my body felt that literary movement so um that's why i liked it and you know the 66 cohen's in your book you know which is why i find this so special and you can tell talk about how this came about because I'll, I'll ask you that next um but the 66 cohen's in your book are a gift from other practitioners right so who struggled with relationships like you said raising children work you know, loss, illness, old age, death, and just plain old life. Um, and just struggling with situations that we, you know, we all struggle with them. It's part of our life. We, we, we just, we just deal with it or we don't deal with it so well. Um, it's where conceptualization kind of keeps us stuck and we, it, it hardens our life around those concepts and stories. And then bam, something made them stop and step out of the story into their real lives. That's those things that your 66 participants of this book shared. You know, my Dharma grandfather, Reverend Gilmay, wrote that, quote, conceptualizations become confused with real things, unquote. And, and that's exactly what happens. We get stuck in these conceptualizations thinking they're real until something stops us and makes us see it differently. So since you're the teacher here, can you teach us about how Cohen's do that? I mean, mechanically, both the classical presentation of Cohen's, like the case studies and the Cohen's from the everyday in your book, you know, how, how do, how does that work? How, how do they you know, how how do we get them to work? How do you teach them to work? How do they work? You said you were an awful Cohen student. And how did you get to be a good Cohen student? <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm a good Cohen student to this very day. But I will say that I, I was, I think I even wrote this in the book, that I was inspired to do this book, actually, when I was teaching one evening. And one of these householders with four four adopted children. She had wanted to adopt children for a long time. To do that, she fostered 16 children. Whoa, <laughs> yes. And finally got four that were, you know, allowed by the courts to stay with her. She says she loved every one of the 16. And she raised these kids. And with the oldest one, she just talked about, you know, one day he's around and he's bothering me. And I say, you know, Merle, please pick up that, pick up the tissue. Merle, don't don't do this. Or I'm sweeping. <laughs> Merle, please like this. And he turns to her and says, Mom, why are you such a bitch? <laughs> and she was stunned, you know. That's the history of them. She worked so hard to have this boy. And he just turns to her and says, calls her bitch. <laughs> now, imagine what most people would, uh, how they would react. Most mothers, fathers being called that in that context, you know, yelling, getting upset. You can't have TV anymore. I'm taking away your phone. You can't go out here. You right. can't go out there. You know, we react. And she described, and she's been sitting for a long time, she described she just stood still and she just took it in. She didn't reject it. She didn't react to it. You know, she didn't try to deny it, which is very often what we do. We say, oh, I, I don't want trouble. I don't want to make a fuss. Life is too hard anyway. Okay, it's a big deal. It's like that. No, she fully stood there in that moment, taking in this thing of being called that word. And there was some enormous freedom that she experienced then. Mm. And that's what, and she's describing this in the Zendo. That's what she wow. experienced. This freedom. Yeah, sure, I can react here, I can do that, I can do that. 
but she took that moment to fully, fully live it, hear it, you know, almost become it. Yeah. You know, and she described that. I was so moved that somebody could get to a moment like that and be able to be with it, become it so strongly. And the minute she finished telling that story, I said, I think we need to come up with uh, with householder koans because this is fantastic. She described an opening. A gate had opened to her. It could have shut her in even more. Yeah. Instead, she opened it opened up and opened up and opened up. And she saw all the different options that were you know available, but she felt actually very free. Huh. And for me, koan sets you free. They th- that's what they do. If you know how to practice with them, we say, you know, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them all. Well, it's hard to enter them all. But <laughs> what it is is that every moment, every exchange, anything that happens, is a Dharma gate, meaning you're going to go deep into something and you're going to see something. You can experience like the essence of something, you know, and we can call what that something is. I can't even call it God. Yeah. You can access that using anything. And the vows we make is not to turn away from any gate, any door, any human being, any, you know, bad action or bad, you know, harmful words, but to use them as a way to fulfill our vows. And that's what she described happened that day between her and her son. Yeah. You know, and that's, I, 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 uh, I put that together, I think before a long time ago, but I read it again in your book about how it was connected to, I think it was through your book or something I read about you talking about your book. Um, I get these things confused sometimes, unfortunately, is that how you tied it to the uh, Dharma gates and our, our Bodhisattva vow, which, you know, clearly seems impossible to do. But if you look at the Dharma gates as every little thing that happens to you every day, there's plenty of opportunities, right? <laughs> to- right. And you don't have to be anybody special and you don't have to be in any special place. You know, it's like it's possible for everybody and it does take practice. So why do you think, and I thought of this, you know, I thought of this when I read that that, that koan about the mother and and the son calling her a bitch um you know why do you think we miss those opportunities for surprise or 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 being you know in the moment without reacting which is nearly impossible for some of us to do i'm a reactor and it's a lifelong struggle. I mean, hopefully I, I, yeah, I will see a few more moments of non-reactivity before I die. <laughs> but um, exactly. How, why do you think we don't, we don't notice those? Is it because we're completely unaware and not mindful or, or what's the deal here? Why don't we notice these? Yeah. What's the deal here? Uh- <laughs> My husband, Bernie Glassman, that was his favorite. That was a, another householder call on that came from him. What's the deal here? Is he, <laughs> what's going on? Uh, you know, he formulated three tenets that my family and the Dharma, the Zen peacemakers, follows. And the first one is not knowing. So, you know, not knowing doesn't mean I'm ignorant and it doesn't mean I've thrown away my educational masters or my masters or all the knowledge I've crammed into this little head. Not knowing has to do with really giving up our fixed ideas about me, him, you, life, whatever that is. You know, these this is a scaffolding for ourselves. You know, it's like, I need this, I need that. I am this, 
this, I am that. I'm, you know, even like what you just said, you know, I've always been reactive. And I don't know, maybe that is, you know, I can say, I, boy, do I tend to get angry, you know? Yeah. And that's how I experience myself. But at that moment, at that moment, can I let go of even the things I'm certain about? Things I'll swear, things I know I've done, I know I know who I am, I know who I am. I know what life is. And can I just, I, I say to people, you don't have to let it go like that. You know, and I'm just <laughs> throwing my hand wide open. Right. But imagine holding a ball and instead of clutching it, you're just loosening up your fingers. So you don't have to throw the ball away. You don't have to throw all your knowing away, all your, everything you've built up over the years. You don't have to do that. But can you just hold it loosely? Yeah. The minute you're holding it loosely, you are freeing yourself to see and bear witness. Oh, so what is this moment? Not seeing through the prism of myself and my concepts and stories about me. What is this? What is this? Yeah, what That's is this? That's how we're freeing ourselves. And when we do that, um, then the action that arises really fits the situation much better than if it comes out of our thoughts that tend to be, by the way, the same thoughts again and again and again. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, it's like you need to kind of be brought to a dead end, you know, before sort of the new way opens up, right? Something's got to stop you from doing that, whether it be surprise or catching yourself or slowly opening your grasp or or whatever. That that's And that reminds me of one of the Coens in your book and um, – I hope you don't mind if we mentioned a couple or if you oh, want to share. Uh, I, there's so many that spin around in my head and, and, you know, it's like, I've been working with a few that are really helpful for me in my particular situation in life right now. So they kind of stick in my head, but there was this one that uh, <laughs> was about an upstairs neighbor um, <laughs> <laughs> with the two women. Um, and, and they just moved, they just got married. They just moved into this new apartment. And there was this guy upstairs that was, I, I hope I tell the story as good as you wrote it, but um, this guy upstairs banging around, um, kind of talking loudly in a homophobic sort of way. And it was, so there was this, you know, clearly there was this turnoff and, and it was taken by the perspective of one of the women not the other and um you know she was calling him the the homophobe and, and little names for him and it reminded me this that we had this um we live in the most lovely little neighborhood it's kind of like a little town we're all close but there was there's always one right there was one in our neighborhood who just was just that angry bully of a man and he was big and he, he was just, he was just terrible. And he would yell in the neighborhood anytime a little dog barked. And we had two little dogs. There were little dogs all over the place. We have big yards. You know, we, we have like two thirds of an acre. We have big yards and, and there's little dogs all over. And he would yell. He would, I think, have a little bit too much to drink in the evenings and, and start yelling shut up and shut the you know what up and and all that so so it was very frustrating for everybody but it, it you know i'm a i'm an anger reactivity kind of person too and and all i could i called him mr shut up to this day i called him mr shut up and my wife is constantly saying you have she tells me you have got to stop calling him mr shut up he has a name he <laughs> He's not Mr. Shut up. So that that in that story, I'll get the end of this story is she was caught unaware. I wish this would happen to me in this case, but she was caught unaware when the guy called her over outside. He was like pruning the bushes or something. And he said, by the way, I like your wife better than you. And she just quickly said, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, uh, She's an amazing woman. How did she do that? So, so yeah, 
It's that's it's yeah. just amazing. That's that's the freedom you have if you know how to let go. In other words, for that one moment, you know, whatever names she had for him dropped. Yeah. You know, when he said to her, I like your wife better than I like you. Right. It just went. And she came back with this reply <laughs> that even amused him. And for that moment, they really laughed together, you know. <laughs> right. And that's what's possible for us. Um that that's what is so beautiful. And as you know, with the old koans, the way they tried to do that is they would try to, as you say, catch people unaware. So how do you do that? To shock them, yell at them. Sometimes they gave them blows. This is back a millennium ago. Sometimes, you know, they did all kinds of things to shock people. But right. what I realized, you know, when Egyoku and I worked on this book is that life gives us so many shocks. Yeah, I really don't think I need somebody to slap me, yell <laughs> at me. I, I just don't. Life shows me day by day that things are not going the way I planned and that yes. I'm not in control. Life throws this wall in front of me mm-hmm. all the time and I bang right into it. And again, I bang into it. <laughs> and again, I bang into it. Till something happens and I said, I look, oh, you know, there's a wall there. Yeah. Do I really have to go bang into it? Okay. Yeah, that's so that that is so true. And you know, I I hear pe- people talk about um, the classic Zen koans and and actually Zen stories and Buddhist stories, Tibetan stories. And I have uh, I have people coming to me in in the song and so forth and saying, you know, how is it that these people, you know. So they hear somebody say something and then they're immediately enlightened. And it's like, well, you know, I, I'm I wasn't there. I don't know whether they were immediately enlightened, but I do know that enlightenment moments are possible sometimes when you're shocked like that. They they are you because you see things outside of your own stories. Yeah. I sometimes say, yeah, I, I am I'm just like you, Wendy. I don't know what that means. I wasn't there. But that they've had moments of insight. Right. Had openings. Right. That you can see people all around you. People have openings. Yeah. That's why they stay on this path. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, I'm just waiting for my opening. So I'm sitting for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> We've had, we, maybe some of us, bigger openings, some of us small. We wouldn't be on this track if we didn't, um, what I say, even from the beginning, you know, sometimes sniff out something. There's something about this study or this practice that it's it's about my life, but it's about my life that is experienced a little differently from the way I usually do, but it's yeah. still my life. Yeah. So what is that? And why is it that I feel I'm, I'm sometimes coming in touch with something so rare, so in some way extraordinary, and a freedom and a humaneness that is yeah. so, that I didn't know I had in me. <laughs> So how did that happen? Yeah, 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 ex- exactly. And 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 it does. That's that's the whole part of the practice and the work with you know doing it over and over again. Like I'm working with some of the Cohens in the book, and and someone wrote, I know a reviewer or something wrote, you know, I or I don't know where it was in the book, but it was like I see Cohens everywhere now. I see Cohens everywhere <laughs> now that I've seen this householder Cohen, and it, it does absolutely do that for you. I'll, I'll share a little personal story. I might, my, my podcast listeners know this. Um, I totally lost my hair last year from alopecia, like totally ball. I lost like 80% shaved my head and I, I, I have a uh, lupus and in it, its, it can be a, you know, kind of a side effect of that disease. So, um, so when that happened, um, I, I guess I kind of just figured, well, that now I was always going to be bald. And so then I would go on these podcasts with my bald head and I'd say, always introduce myself as, by the way, I'm Wendy Shinyo, but um, I'm a lay minister. I'm not a monastic. <laughs> I have alopecia because my head was this shiny bald head uh, and everybody assumed that I was a, a monastic. And then my hair started growing back this spring. And so I got 
bunch of curly hair and 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 uh not a lot it's still thin and and i noticed it was starting to shed again in the last couple of weeks so now my cohen is um where did the hair go where did the hair go so i would just keep being curious about where the hair go instead of making it a personal disaster again you know mm-hmm. it's a, and it, it's been helpful actually <laughs> so that was a, a, a way that i did that and i think we all have those opportunities to instead of getting into the woe was me or this is how i do it or this is how you are just be curious about it right and i'm going to assume that that's because of your decades of meditative practice so, you know, uh, uh, when we give instructions in meditation, the whole point of it is to not follow the brain, not follow <laughs> the thoughts all the time. And to find, and as we do that slowly, you really get a sense that, oh, I'm not this voice that doesn't shut up ever. You know? <laughs> I am not that voice. There's something else going on here. And if I'm not that, then who or what am I? You see? Exactly. That's the experience. What you know, it it feels mundane and it's dull if you've done it day after day <laughs> for decades upon decades. But you clearly see the ability to not listen to that and put that aside for even stretches of time. And then you realize what else is possible. Yeah. And absolutely. that's what that that's why that practice is so important. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, the word Cohen and the mention of Cohen's has been become kind of widely accepted in our culture over the decades that I've been aware. Um, like, you know, the tree falling in the forest when no one's there to hear, and what's the sound of one hand clapping, and like so many things in this culture, it seems to have become a caricature of itself or or at worst misappropriated like karma and mindfulness. Um yet from my experiences, those that want to study or work with Cohen's are easily intimidated. And I think it's from like you were talking about the classical Cohen's where they were, you know, terrible things happened to them, you know, to surprise them. Um, and, and I think your, 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 your book totally removes that obstacle, but I still think most people think of Cohen's as like sort of dirty tricks or riddles or whatever. I, I facilitated the course based on the book that my Dharma grandfather wrote for our lay ministry training students. And it was fascinating. And I love to facilitate the Cohen one because it was one of my favorite things. And I just loved, I loved to see how they were so surprised at Cohen's. So um, different people react so differently. Some have a complete immediate visceral dislike to them. It's like they're a threat, you know, some fall or a, or a contrivance, a contrivance. Yes. Some fall gently into the place where like not knowing is perfectly comfortable. And so I'm going to share some examples of comments I got on the papers that they, they um, one was Cohen's make fools of us. Oh, they were see in our when we wrote papers, we were supposed to put a Dharma nugget at the end. Um, <laughs> so these were some of the Dharma nuggets that I'll always remember and I've saved. Cohen's make fools of us. I love this one. And I and I remember the look on this guy's face because he hated Cohen's when they first started. He said, Cohen's untie our shoelaces. Well, <laughs> that that is to me, he got it, boy. And and then another one is I haven't been able to make a sense of one Cohen yet. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> and another one was befriend the dragon. Which, oh. uh, so um, opinions differ about Cohen's clearly. And like I, I studied a little bit with John Tarrant. Um, and because uh, he did a lot of poems and he wrote this article in Shambhala Sun in 2003 and 
he wrote, quote, those who have used Cohen's describe them as a poetic technology for bringing about awakening, an easy method of integrating awakening into everyday life, or the most frustrating thing they have ever done, an appalling waste of time, or a tyranny penetrated, a pe perpetrated by Zen masters. <laughs> so in the end, I think it's very hard to sit in that not knowing place, isn't it? Even if you glimpse it for a brief time, you can't stay there. You know, it is such a reflection of how dominated we are by our brain. Yeah. You know, and I have, I, you know, I love my brain. <laughs> I, I really, I love my intellectual energy. I write, I, I do all kinds of things and I use my mind a lot, a lot, you know, and I appreciate what I get from it, but you can be such a captive to this yes, no, right, wrong, smart, stupid, <laughs> it's no sense, oh, this is great. We can get so stuck in that and live through that and judge life like that and judge other people, you know, instead of being much more playful with it. Yeah. And I have, uh, you know, and I have seen people be so playful. I have seen people who I've only seen sitting and when they do koans, they'll get up and they'll do things. They'll work with their body. They'll dance. They'll, you know, they'll go up and down. <laughs> It encourages us to use our whole selves. And especially Westerners, we come out of this Aristotelian tradition of our right. minds, our minds, our minds. Our minds are no match for life, for the infinite <laughs> life, and also for the playfulness and Playful. the humor of life. So I think you mentioned the word curiosity before. Yeah. Than, you know, your mind's going to reject it hands on, I can tell you. <laughs> because it doesn't know what to do with these things. And that's the magic of it. You let it, let it go. It, it ain't gonna, it, it won't be able to work with your koans. But there's the rest of you that can work with a koan. And if that's the case, now what are you gonna do? Yeah. Yeah, that 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 is that is so good. I love that your mind is no match for Cohen's. I, I think that's a quote I'm going to hang on to. I hope you don't mind if I steal it, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so true. Um, and that this, you know, this kind of reminds me of. Uh, oh, actually, um, Tarrant talked about this in his book um, "Bring Me the Rhinoceros and Other Zen mm -hmm. Cones That Will Save Your Life." He talks about the playfulness and the fun of it and the silliness of it. Um, like his one, you know, the whole point of the name of his book is ridiculous, and um, and he he talks about quote a one two three four rhinoceros, and he says, "Does that make any sense?" Of course not, but it does make you smile, and it stops you from con conceptualizing just for a little bit and focus on the sound of the words and the images and what you're doing right now. And, yeah, and Koan is a wonderful. You know, when he says to his uh, assistant, "Bring me the rhinoceros fan," a fan that maybe had that photo, you know, picture or painted fan of that. And I forget, he said it was broken. Broken, right. It was broken. And the teacher says, well, then bring me the rhinoceros. <laughs> it's fantastic. It, 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 it's just great, you know? It is. And it reminds me of quite a few Cohen's in your book. Um, like the one that comes to mind, here's another one I'm going to share, because I burst out laughing when I read this one. Um, it, although I wasn't laughing at the guy, I was laughing with the guy, the guy that was standing on an old stump pruning his, um, yeah. his, his rose vine that was going up the downspout. And so he stands on the stump and I can visualize myself in that position because I get myself in a lot of awkward positions in the garden, but he's standing on an old stump that broke apart. And while he was standing standing on it um it broke apart and he ended up trapped in the vines and the thorns and he couldn't move he was actually suspended in the rose bush and while he was suspended there he laughed and he asked where was i before so that i know where i am now and then you which also i mean i i, I just was blown away by that and then the summary at the end of the cone said and i'll give that you know, structure of the book away, there's always a summary that you you two must have put in there, I guess. Um, 
um, quote, what is the laugh that resounds throughout the whole universe? Where are you standing now in a life which is ever changing? Where do you place your feet? I love that. But can you comment more on this? Because I'm sure there are some, especially those who aren't familiar with Zen teachings or koans, who might respond as if this was so much nonsense. This is where we need a teacher. Roshi, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, where was I before? It's such a funny thing. Where was I before? And now I'm here. You know, <laughs> it's like, first of all, think of how often, as you say, you're working on your garden or I will go and weed. You think I'm thinking of what I'm doing? How often am I thinking? I'm someone else completely. I'm thinking about what I'm going to, when am I, should I make my soup? But it's hot. Do I really want to make soup? But if I not make soup, what am I going to eat? And what about this? And I would need to travel, but should I rent a car? And all this stuff, you know, it's like, where am I? Where am I? You know, yesterday I, I wrote, I have a blog and I wrote about this. That my dog went swimming in this big lagoon. And first time I ever saw her swim. Really? I've had five years, never saw her swim. Likes to wade in, stay, stays in the hot day in the water, enjoys that swim, never. And one day yesterday, she jumped out and jumped into a big lagoon in chase of uh, ducks and swam into the deepest parts and kept on swimming like this is second nature to her. I was so nervous about her. I ran down towards the water, but I had to run through some very dense um, trees and vines holding me. Well, there she is swimming freely, <laughs> happily, joyfully, just like an Olympic swimmer, this dog that never swam in five years. There's me closed up and <laughs> literally stuck between branches that it was like a movie, you know, how they imprison you. And, and you think any day now something is going to open up its mouth and swallow <laughs> me because I can't get out. I can't get out. Well, I was in a hurry to go down there in case she needed help. But it's like, wait a minute, but you went through these things. Where was your mind? Where is your mind? And finally, my mind stopped when I'm imprisoned in these vines and I can't move. Forget about the dog. I can't move. You see? Yeah. So it was a wonderful thing that happened. And what is this? And, and these things keep on happening to me. And the only difference between me and people who haven't practiced like this is that I pay attention to them when they happen. Right. Oh, look at this. Where are you? What are you, are you thinking about the dog? Forget the dog. Look at look at what happened to you. Where are you now? Yeah. Where are you? Yeah, that's a great teaching. That is. And it ha we have the opportunities to do that all the time. But like you said, you kind of have to practice noticing the opportunities and then reviewing that and practice again and practice again. And it, it takes meditation or or paying attention. I don't know. You know, maybe it, it maybe not necessarily meditation, whatever, you know, people can do to pay attention to what's happening to them rather than what's that voice that does that thing all the time. So, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a koan and actually um, the, the guy trapped in the vines and you trapped in the vines <laughs> um, reminds me of that uh, Tibetan Buddhist scholar and yogi Longchenpa who wrote, since everything is but an apparition, having nothing to do with good or bad acceptance or rejection, one may well burst out in laughter. Right. And and that that Zochen teaching, like I, I mentioned at the beginning, or maybe when we were talking before we were recording, that Zochen teaching is so much like Zen, I think, in, in a lot of ways, because it looks at the usual conversation in your little mind and it interrupts it and then lets you giggle about it a little. So you feel a little slight. Oh, sort of a lessening of an attachment to whoever that is you are in there. And you and you can't help but laugh at it if you catch it. You know, you just have to catch it, which is like you had said before, it's a wonderful freeing experience to, you know, be stuck in a koan, even if the koan is you stuck in the 
vines um, and then ask that question of yourself that to someone else might make no sense. You know, but it also, I feel like it makes life so much more positive. Um, yeah. um, oh, what's her name? Uh, she, she says uh, life is much better than how, than what you think of it. Yeah. Think of her name. She's she's the one with the four questions, and I forget her name. Um, married to Stephen Mitchell, um, but I will simply say, you know, we judge so much. Yeah. Mom, oh, that was a lousy talk I gave last night. Right. You mean I left the laundry overnight in the rain? What kind of a dummy am I? <laughs> you know, or I mean, just think of how minute after minute we judge ourselves. Right. And we judge life and we judge others so unnecessarily. And imagine if you say, you know, I really don't know if it's good or bad. Right now it may not feel so good, but you know. Do I know what's a good talk? Do I know what's a success? Do I know what's a failure? That's it's such a narrow way of looking at life. Life is so much bigger than that. And as we follow news and as we follow history, right. we know that we come across things that we think are terrible. And at the same time, something so beautiful came out of it that yeah. it that's that's life. Life is more creative than Shakespeare from my point of view, you know? Right. So why get down on anything? Why get pessimistic and why get glum and why get all those depressions and anxieties that people, it's rampant, as you know, nowadays. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's really unnecessary. It's just unnecessary. Yeah, we don't know how to laugh anymore. And I think that's a lot of it too. You know, we don't laugh at ourselves. We laugh at other people in making fun of them and judging them. Um, and and like you said, we're hard on ourselves. I'm very hard on myself. And then I realize that that's probably why I can be judgmental about others. You know, I'm, I'm forever saying, oh, how stupid, Wendy. Oh, how stupid. Every, you know, one stupid little thing that I do. Well, it's not, you know, it's just a little mistake. It's not stupid. It's just a little thing that I didn't pay attention to. So, yeah, you made a exceptional point there and you also talked a little bit before and I kind of wanted to go back to this circle back to the literary concept of Cohen's you know to me and I, I mentioned this uh and I again I don't remember whether it's before recording or at the beginning I've always been a journal keeper and a poet a kind of a hack poet I'm not very good but I do it um to me poems are always Cohen's yeah. I they're always Cohen's to read or to write a poem. You have to make a leap from the known to the unknown or the unknown to the known. You combine things that don't belong together that in, in normal syntax and normal logical thinking. And you try to express feelings without using traditional concepts. So they poems are always a little surprising which probably is why so many people don't really understand poetry, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can see that. You see, I, I do love poetry. I don't read, I don't write it, and I don't read it probably as much as you do. But you see, I think that every single aspect of our life can be like that. Yeah. That kind of lightness, that kind of leap, that kind of something unorthodox, something not the regular routine, yeah. not something that I'm repeating again and again, subject, verb, object, subject, yeah. verb, object. Forget that. There's nothing about life that is linear like that. No relationship I've ever had was linear. <laughs> like, why am I living like that? Boy, that is so true. I mean, it is absolutely true. Actually, I, in uh, my last po podcast uh, with Rain Wilson, I don't know if you know him. He 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 was in the office, uh, the 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 TV show, and he wrote this book. It's time for a spiritual revolution. He's a mm -hmm. Baha'i, and we had a fun talk. He's a funny guy, um, and we were talking about how people, one of the people, don't read literature anymore they don't read fiction because people don't read because they lost their ability to concentrate you know they scroll 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 and they don't read fiction and he says 
he hears people say, I don't read fiction because, you know, it's not real. And <laughs> <laughs> Why would I want to read it? It's not real. And, and it's like, I, I always was a nonfiction reader. And when I was younger, I was a fiction reader. And I've gotten back to reading fiction again as I'm trying to extend my ability to concentrate um, from this, you know, you know, doom scrolling mentality. And um, I, it's so delightful. It makes life wonderful to read fiction again. You know, I tell people when we talk, let's say in a song or just even other things, please don't sound like AI. <laughs> don't sound, you know, AI is so generic. Right so bland it's incapable at least at this stage of making leaps right it's incapable of surprising you really right other than saying wow look at how much it knew what to say no 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 that's not a big deal i would be surprised when it starts making leaps you know and and bringing in all kinds of things that we call distractions. The yeah. distractions are usually more fun than anything else. You know, all these leaps our minds make, and it's so fantastic. It's what it's life is supposed to be full of leaps. AI can't do that, but right. we can as human beings. Right. You know, I always told people that I like to read writers who um, write like rivers um, without without yield signs or stop signs or slow down or, you know, they don't rarely have transitions. I'm reading a book right now um, called Appalachian Zen, um, mm -hmm. which, which I hope to have that. It just reads like a complete. I see, but by kanji rule. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. reads like a complete river. I am mesmerized, but I have to be kind of wide awake to read it because I can lose myself in the thing, but um, it's just amazing. And I, and I love that kind of uh, uh, writing. And so you're right. Um, it is just literally five minutes away from me. Oh really? Yeah, I I got him he as as a suggestion from your publishing house. Who after yeah. I booked you, they said, "Would you be interested in re reading some of our other work in Buddhism?" I said, "Sure." He said, "Why don't you check out his review copy?" And I was like mesmerized. So it's wonderful. Just my kind of writer. No, no like a river. <clears throat> no, I, and for some reason I don't know why. Again, it's like a distraction. It reminds me we. Uh, we went to Chiapas um, in uh, Mexico years ago uh, to work with refugees at the time. There were a lot of things going on in Chiapas because Chiapas in southern Mexico uh, is very rich in minerals. And and so what happened is that certain gangs came in, wow. wanted to kick out the indigenous people there. So my husband really loved clowning. And so we went with uh, Mr. Yuhu, who is the head of the American a group of clowns without borders. <laughs> and he's a wonderful person. His name is Moshe Cohen, but um, his uh, clown name is Mr. Yuhu, and he's based in San Francisco, and he does a lot of things. But he loves to go to troubled areas and to perform there. So he's performed in Ukraine and in Poland and Chiapas and different refugee camps. So we're with him. And he does different things and he's just wonderful. And finally, at the end, he says, okay, and now I'm going to, you are all going to disappear. <laughs> Everybody's excited there. And he takes off his glasses. <laughs> now, I thought that was a riot. And I laughed, <laughs> and, you know, Bernie laughed. And nobody else was laughing. And you know what we realized? They didn't wear glasses. Oh, you yes. If you don't wear glasses, they were so poor. They didn't yeah. wear glasses, so oh. they didn't understand the correction that you get through yeah. glasses. That's kind so of they, sad now. Well, it is sad, but in some way, look at how much you learned from that. It's you see, we assume we know. Yeah. So Moshe thought this was, you know, you who thought this is a great, a great joke. This is a wonderful thing. They're gonna laugh. This is a great way to end my show, and so on. But you see, he had to let go of a sense that, oh, everybody knows glasses. Right. They don't. And, and that's why it's always going back to not knowing again and again. And again. 
all the things you think you know you don't you don't really know no and that's so true um I have another last question, and this is a bit, a little bit inside baseball, but I think you can go with me here uh, inside Buddhism, I guess. Um, within Buddhist circles across the decades that I've been practicing, you'll hear, and I even hear this today from someone says, you shouldn't take up a koan practice without a teacher. I've heard that for years. It, also in the Tibetan Buddhist practices, you can't do that without a proper uh empowerment um but you know i think we need to drop a lot of these outdated and hyper rigid ideas of buddhist practice that prevents us from you know bringing our practice into the kitchen or the garden or the bathroom which is a place my teacher reverend coyo used to love to have us practice because he used to do something called toilet gasho he used to have mm-hmm. all different types of toilet gashos so <laughs> <laughs> he had that kind of sense of humor, which I loved. He, so do you think we've gotten past, you know, you can speak for maybe formal Zen practice. I can't. Do you think we've gotten past this admonishment in formal Zen practice? You know, I'll tell you what I tell people when they ask, do I need a teacher? I tell them, uh, no. I mean, I, I personally think it's great. I, I mean, I I wouldn't be say that if I didn't teach. I mean, that's why that's why my life worked out the way it did. But if you can't, and many people live far away or whatever, then fine. But if you can check in with someone, really, you know, make a regular of checking in. I don't know, once in six months, once in a year, do a retreat with a real teacher, and the reason is. Our minds can fool us like anything. You can take any one of these koans and work with it intellectually and write a book about it. (laughs) But all you did is you wrote a scholarly book about a koan. And I can give you talks and talks about koans. That's fine. But to really work it in your life, you have to let go of that brain to some extent, not, you know, not completely. I'm not saying drop the whole thing, right. but hold things loosely. And I think that we can uh, fool ourselves. Yeah. Our brain can fool ourselves and think, Oh, look at you. You're a real master of koans. Yeah. But it's not so simple. And as you know, there are stories in the history of, people who worked and worked and worked on a koan and um and it's like they couldn't get it but they stayed with it and stayed with it and, st- and the teacher always said no 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 yeah right they stayed with it and stayed with it and then it's like suddenly everything became clear but they uh, there's a wonderful i'll just tell you a story about peter matheson the writer and zen teacher um he had a wonderful student whom I also knew, and uh, that student worked on the koan mu, which is a classical right. Zen koan where someone asks Chao Chu, does a dog have but a nature? And Chao Chu says mu. And mu means um, not. But what does that mean? Does it mean that a dog really doesn't have but a nature? Are you kidding me? Why would he say not? And so there's ways of working on it. So Peter is working with his prize student, so his major student, and that student is working on move. One year passes, two years pass, <laughs> three years pass. And this wonderful man, Hans, is always saying, no, Peter says, no, Hans comes in the next day, makes a presentation. No, no, no. The years pass. And it was Peter who told me this. And finally, they have this where again, he rings, well, no, um, no. And Hans looks at him and says, do you think I'm ever going to pass move? And Peter looks at him and says, you know, Hans, it depends on you. If you think you passed Mu, then you passed. So what do you think, Hans? And Hans says, no, I didn't pass Mu. And he goes out the door. (laughs) So Hans died before passing Mu, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. 
it didn't matter. So yeah. that's, I don't know if that really answers your question. No, it, it does. It moved me very deeply. It does. It does answer my question. Um, you know, I started a sangha. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, like I said, I'm not an ordained teacher. It was just a sangha so that we have a place to practice together, you know, and I think that's very important. You even talk about that in your book. I think that's even one of the Cohen's in the book is mm -hmm. like someone suggested, let's give Dharma talks. And, and they got down on her throat because you, we can't give Dharma talks. We're not teachers. And, and it's like in our group, we share that kind of thing. And, and we were trained to give Dharma glimpses. We called them glimpses. So it was a glimpse of the Dharma that happened in our lives. And we were trained to do that. And I, and I taught that with my Sangha and, you know, it's, it's wonderful because we serve as teachers for each other. And I think even if you can't find a, even a teacher to practice with or check in with, because a lot of people have tried to even do nowadays, though, it's easier because there's virtual capabilities. And I think that has made a huge difference for people. But, you know, any way you can could keep yourself honest and away from conception. <laughs> from from telling yourself stories that you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so there yeah. is so much more I could talk to you about and would love to like go through each one of these columns, but maybe someday we come, you come on the podcast again and we can talk more about columns or something else you're doing in your life. Um, and I will of course point a link to where our listeners can learn more about you and learn more about this book. But before we close, is there anything else you'd like to say that I didn't ask or you'd like to bring up? Oh, yeah. I would just say that uh, my life in Zen is the source of the biggest richness in my life. I have lived a wonderful, wonderful life. But whether it's Zen practice, whether it's Zen-based social action, which the Zen peacemakers you know, are known for, it's fantastic. And I feel that practice, as I said before, if you're liable to anxiety, sadness, depression, self-criticism, if you lack confidence in yourself and life, really start sitting, start yeah feeling it, you know, start bringing your attention down to your belly and feel the rest of you and the miracle of your existence. And over the years, it's going to change. It's going to change how you experience life. That's an important thing to end with. And, but we'll give that little caution in that for a lot of times you, you, it's terrible and it's boring. And you say, what the heck am I doing here? And I get so many people say, um, uh, what's the payoff? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. What's the payoff? It's like, like enlightenment's a payoff, like something, there's this transactional kind of thought process that goes on. And it's like, wow, I can't even answer that question. <laughs> question and uh, the payoff is you will feel more comfortable if you keep doing it that's the payoff right it's a great journey don't worry about where you end up it's just a great journey exactly and that's the whole Maybe point not every single day but nothing is great every single day no you're right and life is a great journey and this is just part of it it's wonderful thank you so much eve this has been a great pleasure and um Everybody will buy that book because I'll make sure it's easy for them to do so. So thanks again and have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Wendy. And I wish all your listeners a wonderful day. That's it for this episode. You can find more about Roshi Eve and her activities in the show notes, including a link to buy the book, The Book of Householder Cohen's. Waking Up in the Land of Attachments. Next up, of course, some announcements. We've just begun a new study in the Everyday Sangha where you can join me and others in our private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha is at the beginning of a study of the Pure Land Sutras with the book Great Faith, Great Wisdom 
practice and awakening in the Pure Land Sutras of Mahayana Buddhism by Ratnaguna. Our meetings consist of a service first, including traditional vow recitations and other invocations, chanting, and a short meditation period. The service introduces more ritual and liturgy into the structure of our meetings, much like you would find at a non-virtual Buddhist temple, church, or sangha. It includes a Dharma talk by one of the practice leaders or myself, and after the service, we then open it up to discussion of the current book study or of anything that was inspired by one of the Dharma talks, or just about insights people have gained by reading the book. Consider joining the Sangha at this time to be a part of the new sutra study, to be a part of the practice, and a warm and welcoming Sangha community. You can learn more about the Sangha by viewing the latest bonus YouTube podcast where myself, Bradley Janayo-sensei, and Terry Hoskin, our practice leaders, talk about what the Sangha and what everyday Buddhism is all about. You can also support this podcast and the other activities of Everyday Buddhism by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to all members-only podcasts, an education series, the Introduction to Buddhism course, the upcoming Buddhist Book Club, and many other things that will be announced on our private, non-Facebook group platform. Now, if you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any of the social media platforms we post in, you can go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha, or just go to find out what's going on or look listen to the latest podcast. Go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on either the the tab that says join members community or join everyday sangha if you'd like to join one of those groups or you can go join through patreon at patreon.com forward slash everyday buddhism links to joining the everyday sangha and membership community are posted in the show notes You know, I thank all of you who contribute. I know I say this all the time, but it means everything. This podcast, the community, and the Sangha all depend on your donations to continue to exist. I don't seek podcast sponsors, and I don't ask for financial commitments through like paid podcast memberships. So all the work that I do and the costs needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded except for your donations. Please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or on my website's donate tab. You can even buy me a cup of coffee with the coffee cup link on the website. you find all these links on the show notes. And thanks, too, to all of you who write in with comments and questions. As the latest bonus member podcast illustrates, I read your emails and may even pick your question to feature in a bonus podcast. Another way you can help, and this is important, is to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. As you probably know, it's a crazy world in the podcast universe out there. And the more people that get to know the podcast by your thumbs up or your review, the better off everyone will be. So it's important to share this with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment so people will know why it is you love everyday Buddhism. All right, that's it for the announcements. And until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.